sve to sam ja kriv što sam slušao lažne stručnjake i sve moguće strance koji su dolazili u ovu zemlju da mi sole pamet. You are a mess guys, you are a big mess and you are a disgrace. Teško da će iko naći nešto vjerodostojno da će mene definirati da nisam Hrvat. Od vremena to pamtim za sebe. Mlade ljude koji odlaze će morati u velikoj meri nadoknati high-tech tehnologijama i robotikom. Šta ti radiš? Eto, malo nešto. Jesi ti mene učio da kad pjevaš bo ne misliš? Nemaš vremena, mi zbog. Protest will not stop until we achieve our main demand. Obesio bih se ovaj najveći luster ovde samo zato što sam ih bilo šta slušao. After we opened the new season of Calling with an explainer on the flamboyant Prime Minister of Albania, Edi Rama, this time we move next door to take a look at who is in power in Europe's youngest state. Kosovo's Prime Minister, Albin Kurti, was enthusiastically voted into power two years ago after pushing out entrenched establishment parties, winning by the highest margin in Kosovo's democratic history. Since then, he's become a persistent thorn in the side of Serbian President Aleksandar Vucic in the dialogue between the two countries in Brussels. Kurti went from being perhaps the most famous political protester in the Western Balkans, whose party was known for stunts ranging from turning over UN cars, setting the government building on fire and smuggling tear gas into parliament. Now he's translated the same take-no-prisoners attitude towards protesting to politics, and some believe that he might be hurting Kosovo in the process. We speak to Una Haidari about the enigmatic leader of Kosovo, especially as Pristina and Belgrade are rumored to be close to signing a final agreement to solve the ongoing issues between the two. And here with me today, I have Una Haidari, a journalist covering Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And thanks for being here. Could we begin by perhaps describing what the immediate post-war political atmosphere in Kosovo was like? Who dominated the scene and what was the key agenda for the leadership at the time? Well, one thing that people often forget when they talk about Kosovo's post-war period in general is that until 2008, Kosovo functioned as a de facto protectorate of the United Nations. So after the 1999 NATO bombing of what was left of Yugoslavia at the time, so Serbia, Montenegro, and Kosovo, but Kosovo was then the province of Serbia, and the withdrawal of the, so the guarantee that enabled the withdrawal of the Serbian mainly Serbian, but formerly Yugoslav, political and uh, security and army apparatus was the fact that the UN would come in and sort of be the de facto leaders. They, yeah, so at the, it was at the time the only UN protectorate in Europe. Actually, it's the only UN protectorate in Europe ever in Europe's history. And what this meant was that you had the UN uh, elect uh, something similar to a high representative that was mm -hmm. actually representative of the country and that they would deal with security issues with assistance from NATO. So the K4 peacekeeping mission was the army of the country. But at the same time, Kosovo was allowed to have its parliament, its government, its you know local authorities and stuff like that. So it had a functioning 
democratic system where elections were held and so on and so forth. But then on top of that, sort of at a, at a supranational level, uh, the UN was actually had the final say. And, you know, this is this this lasted until 2008. Then Kosovo formally declared independence. I mean, it, it should be mentioned that like before 2008, people would get like UN passports from Kosovo and UN IDs and UN license plates and stuff like that. And speaking just, of license plates. Yes, license plates. And, and this is all tied, obviously, to Resolution 1244, which was passed uh, in 1999 and allowed for this mission to be established. Anyway, in 2008, Kosovo declared independence. And then for a couple of years, it also had a monitoring mission, which obviously was a scaled down version of the UN mission um, up until that point. But at the same time, the UN or UNMIC, the UN mission in Kosovo continues to operate in the country today, but has very like other obligations um, on the ground. So a, a dumb question, perhaps, but um, how could Kosovo declare independence in 2008 only? I mean, what were people waiting for? Well, until 2008, there's these status talks that, were, that existed between Kosovo and Serbia. Serbia, even after 1999, insisted that Kosovo was formerly part of its territory that was only temporarily being administered by the UN. In fact, the language, sort of privremeni, or temporary institutions, is something that is mm-hmm. used by uh, government outlets um, in Serbia to this day. So it's not something that has ever gone away entirely in terms of the Serbian perception. And so these status talks were held with various negotiators, international and local um, on both sides. And then Marty Atisari, who is a, a Finnish um, diplomat, he put together this final plan, which then ended up being largely ended up being part of the Kosovo constitution if not entirely, and it included sort of independence for Kosovo. Or Once the plan was established, it opened the path for Kosovo to declare independence and establish its own institutions. Of course, the provisions that were in that plan included things like minority issues, language issues. English was one of the formal languages in Kosovo, mm-hmm. the official languages in Kosovo, along with Serbian and Albanian. It was dropped after 2008. And so all of that kind of these talks that existed for ages culminated in, in 08. And then in February, they uh, declared independence. The Kosovo parliament voted mm-hmm. to declare independence, making it a declaration of independence that reflected the will of the people. Because it, at that point, mm-hmm. um, the parliament reflected over 90% of the population in Kosovo. Right. And who were the key political actors in those like early years of, of, of Kosovo's independence? And then prior to that, Kosovo's, um, was it UN uh, tutelage, to <laughs> UN control, UN uh, backing? Yeah, UN handholding. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's the thing is, so all the parties that were active in the 90s were still active or either active exclusively in the 90s, but also then transformed themselves in something else after that, but also or were formed early in the early 2000s in the first elections that were held in the country. They are the parties that still dominate the scene states. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the first uh, sort of party formed as Kosovo started edging away from rigid socialist political organ- mm-hmm. organization was the Le- Democratic League of Kosovo or the LDK as the Albanian acronym is that people know it or more familiar with. The Democratic League of Kosovo was held, was led, sorry, by the most famous Kosovo politician during the 90s, Ibrahim Rogova, who, you know, was this sort of, he was a writer and a book critic who kind of formed what people learned that, you know, people mm-hmm. actually covered Kosovo in the 90s know as this sort of like peaceful resistance to the oppression that was coming from the state apparatus in Belgrade. Right. Uh, a kind of an I'm a lover, not a fighter kind of person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was funny because he, so he wears these big, uh, he studied in France, which is very evident because he was constantly like smoking and had these big glasses and wore like a scarf on top of his like tie, shirt and tie and and was very, was very atypical in many ways leader compared to the rest of the Balkans who during the 90s had, or the rest of Yugoslavia, who during the 90s had political leaders that were much more rough around the edges, let's say, but also just, just mm-hmm. a different type of personality. He was, he's, he, in that sense, he was very atypical, which some people saw as a good thing and some people as a bad thing. The people who saw that as a bad thing were those who were part of the Kosovo Liberation Army, which is 
a misnomer. Um, they were a guerrilla force, uh, decentralized in many part, way, parts of the country. Guerrilla force um, that was that started out by resisting sort of police oppression and police mm-hmm. sort of mistreatment in, especially in smaller communities in Kosovo. Because one of the big problems was with that, besides sort of the high level political oppression and so on and so forth, most people in Kosovo, Albanians in Kosovo, faced a lot of daily sort of harassment from the police forces or the Serbian police forces or the largely Serbian police forces. And ALA organized itself in a way initially to try to sort of just like, you know, have families or neighborhoods sort of protect each other from having to pay out bribes or have mm. um, houses raided and that kind of stuff. And and then it grew, grew into sort of a national, in other ways, international movement. When I say international, very much based in Kosovo, but it was financed a lot by the diaspora the Albanian, the Kosovo Albanian diaspora and stuff like that. So it, it then mushroomed into something, you know, an active fighting force in 1998, 99. And the KLA, then their political successors are the Democratic Party of Kosovo. And so these are the two big actors in the country to this day. Mm-hmm. And, and what was Kurti doing at the time? What was his original claim to fame? Well, he was a student um, in the 90s. And so one thing that that affected young people's lives a lot in the 90s besides the oppression and stuff like that was the fact that Albanian language educational uh, institutions in Kosovo had been shut down and or their operation had been made very difficult or almost impossible. Things like textbooks being imposed that were changing in Serbia in the 90s, which spoke of Kosovo in ways that people didn't accept and that kind of stuff. And so the entire educational system shifted into exile. I mean, by exile, they were in the country, but they it was organized illegally. They existed in, in basements, in yeah. houses that people would, like diaspora houses that people like weren't living in, that, you know, would serve as classrooms with like barely any desks and like one sort of chalkboard where people would like teachers would do this and and, and, and people have everyone to share books and stuff like that. And so Kurti was a student right at that time. He is definitely like a continuation at that time of sort of this Yugoslav or almost like left-wing student figure, like someone mm-hmm, who, mm-hmm. a student who believes, you know, like people who participate in the activities political marches and rallies and stuff like that, um, and debates in, in 1968 all over Western Europe and Central Europe. So, like, Shazdesetosmas with a millennial twist or something. To yeah, uh, with, with a war... Gen, Gen X twist. With a wartime twist. Right, also. <laughs> yeah, so he, he was someone, and the students in Pristina in general, obviously felt like their lives were being taken away from them and that they needed to kind of do something to you know raise their voice and make and make make the, basically make make the world know and understand what was going on and and Kurti was like their spokesperson and sort of a, a leader in the protests and stuff like that uh, student protests were very massive at the time uh, were also very violently oppressed so they became something that people would identify with strongly and then he um, also happened to speak English pretty well had like very long sort of a um, these this long curly hair and like a Fidel Castro mustache and, mm. stuff, and stuff like that so, so he it, the very much the image of like a rebellious student leading the fight against unjust injustice and oppression mm-hmm. how did he fare at the time in terms of popularity or well both in, I guess both in terms of popularity but also um in terms of like what was the reaction of those in power at the time well the Kosovo Albanian side appreciated him especially average people I know like a lot of journalists whether they were like based in Belgrade or countries in other surrounding countries often recall like having like young female journalists recall having crushes on him because he was very charming and and uh sort of you know this, this figurehead but he did not fare very well when it came to police oppression. So mm-hmm. higher level political figures like former president, prime minister Hashim Thaci, who was part of the KLA or Rugova, who we mentioned earlier, because they were too high up to be directly targeted by this, by the Serbian slash Yugoslav government. Because then if you target someone who's as big of a deal as Rugova, then, you know, it would kind of defeat the point of Milosevic, a former Serbian uh, strongman and president, Slobodan Milosevic, claiming that, you know, actually Albanians aren't being oppressed. 
but a student like especially the one that's constantly constantly you know appearing in these protests is less of a liability and so he ended up in jail for two years i believe and one thing that started happening in the late 80s and continuing through continuing throughout the 90s is a lot of Kosovo Albanian intellectuals ended up in various Serbian prisons i mean Serbian as in on the territory of mm-hmm. Serbia or uh, Serbian controlled prisons in Kosovo um, as a way to silence the opposition, especially the opposition that wasn't very famous, you know. And so people who were much older than him, like journalists and stuff and former, actually former workers of the uh, League of Socialists of Kosovo. So people who were, you know, not nationalists necessarily, they were part of the Yugoslav system until 89. They, even though all of them, claimed they were they were treated not that well, um, which is not surprising considering the climate at the time. But they all unanimously say that Corti was treated a lot worse. Like he was actually physically beaten regularly and suffered all kinds of forms of psychological and physical torture. So that's what, where he ended up until he was pardoned, pardoned, quote unquote, by the Serbian government. And after, you know, the NATO bombing and everything and was able to come back to Kosovo. Yeah. So that that's when he, I guess, his political career, his real political career um, kind of starts. Yeah, I was I was just about to ask, how did he make the switch from being an activist to being a politician? When did that happen? So that actually took a longer time in the sense that so in, I believe, 2004 or five, that then uh, perhaps five is more precise, but the Vetman dossier, the self-determination movement was formed. This, again, a continuation of Kurti's beliefs from uh, the 90s, these, this, this idealist student vision uh, that nations, uh, in many ways, you know, socialist perception that nations should not be oppressed, that they should be ones who are in, in control of their identity, political and otherwise, and that they should be the ones forming and shaping their future, whether through a state or other parastate institutions. And so this is something that he believed very and continues to believe, I believe, I think. Last time I spoke to him, he did um, believe very strongly. And so he formed this activist movement, which is literally called or the self-determination movement. Even the party today, now that they're like the governing party of the country, is called Yuzhevitvendosia. Hmm. They insist it's always going to be a movement and not a party. And that was before in 2005. And that, again, got a lot of tension internationally. I remember I was starting out as a journalist at the time, and everyone was surprised at like, well, like how could these ungrateful Kosovo Albanians protest against like the UN mission in Kosovo and like the international protectorate and stuff like that when you know they should be grateful this is happening they would do stunts like so during the UN mission there there are these big sort of vans or jeeps um UN jeeps that obviously look the same everywhere all over like the capital and the country and stuff like that and so they would go and like overnight or sometimes during the day just to attract more attention topple them and stuff like that and just you know make it unable for them to it, it, it was it was kind of public disturbance Kind of protesting where, where it was not it never went as far as the protests they organized didn't go never went as far as injuring someone mm-hmm. in 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 one of their protests two protesters died but that was because of the reaction of the international peacekeepers but that's another story but they you know the worst thing they would do was like pelt a politician or someone with eggs and tomatoes and stuff like that so yeah i'm sure the people on the receiving end weren't too amused by no it. and it was weird because like, again, this is very much a continuation of his political beliefs that are based on the fact that, yeah, of course, we're grateful that the West stood behind Kosovo. And it's at that point, Kosovo wasn't independent. Remember, he'd talk about how this was sort of facade that they claimed to be giving all this political power to Kosovo Albanians when, in fact, they had the they had the final say. And he would not accept the presumption that just because the West was doing something for the country that it was perfect and great and that it shouldn't be questioned. And it's something actually that follows him to this day, the criticism, other parties try to paint him as anti-Western, which mm-hmm. I personally and other people, other journalists and analysts and, and, and so on and so forth, they don't believe that, but he is way more openly critical. He saw the West as being sort of a colonial power in Kosovo, 
which was very, very taboo at the time for a country that was so pro-Western and a country that had actually benefited so much from Western assistance. But you could say that both things can be true at the same time. Someone can be pro-Western and still criticize the West. Well, why do you think people have a problem with understanding that? Every rational person should be able to criticize every, you know, the West, the East, whatever we're calling <laughs> these different parts of the world, whatever broad <laughs> brush strokes we're painting them in. But yeah, everyone should be critical of all that. And then also not be, you're critical of the political system. You're critical of the decision makers. You're just critical of, you're not critical of the country itself and the people itself. Like that's, that's, that's very reductionist. Mm -hmm. But Kosovo just had so much, you know, it spent most of Yugoslavia edging up towards getting more rights, but never kind of the peak of sort of Kosovo status in Yugoslavia came after the 1974 constitution, which gave them autonomy rights. But then also in the, you know, up until the 80s, that kind of increased in various segments. And then people thought that, you know, this is the only party, uh, this isn't the only side, the West is the only side. And by and, and I don't mean just the United States, although the US is obviously one of Kosovo's loudest supporters, for which it gets criticized on the left a lot. Um, so, but also like Germany, the UK, France, largely. <laughs> France is weird. So it, can, it goes back and forth. But but they, these are all countries that generally support Kosovo a lot. And so he claimed that Kosovars did not want to be treated like submissive fools who should just say thank you and take whatever they're handed. And that if these people, because these people claimed, again, Western officials, Western representatives, representatives of supranational organizations claim that they were doing this for the benefit of the people and the locals. He said, well, if you really want to do it for the benefit of the locals and build a sustainable democracy, then this is not how mm. to do it. And that's why they were very popular for the beginning, because it resonated with people, especially young people. Right. Speaking of that, what were his supporters like? What are his supporters like? Some would go as far as to describe the most fervent among them as almost a cult. Would you, would you say that's fair? Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's harsh, but true. I think that Vendosia, again, because they're so unique on the political scene. I mean, the way they were formed and how they, you know, ended up, came to the point where now they form the majority in government. For background, they ran in, the, the first time they ran in elections was in 2010. And won, like, like were third placed or something and they did really, really, really well for like a party that just entered the elections. Mm -hmm. And that kind of scared the establishment parties. I think uh, before they entered parliament, they were really popular because people really resonated with them. And, and these were very cool people, largely. Like these were writers, philosophers, left-wing activists. Like I said, 68 in a nutshell, but you know, or musicians who would participate in protests and stuff like that, like get tear gassed all the mm -hmm. time. And then, you know, it, it just felt... Younger people at the time, I remember, like I said, that, that's when I started doing reporting on them and I would go to their rallies and events and stuff. And they really believed that they were affecting their community in a positive way. And that's very uh, addictive as a feeling. And mm. young people are angry and they were angry about the way Kosovo was being treated. Like on one hand, everyone was like, oh, you're like a country kind of, but then not really. And you can kind of do this, but you can't do that. And this, this idea that after 99, people thought this was like over, it was going to be a country and that's it. And whereas they kept being told different versions of the truth by the foreign presence in the country, kind of made them really angry. And they wanted to have, they wanted a platform, you know, or a vessel where they, they could exhibit the, that, that anger and frustration. Let's fast forward just a little bit. What happened the first time he came to power as prime minister? That stint didn't last for too long. Why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, I mean, it's so weird because it was right around the time, like right before the pandemic happened, which is when like the world went crazy. So he won the October 2019 elections. Like the party won insanely, but they needed another party to form the government or, or wanted to have sort of a broader coalition. I think he could have formed a minority government as well. So they, first they were locked into negotiations with LDK, this other party that we mentioned earlier, for like three months or so until early to 2020 and he got elected he became prime minister for the first time in his life i interviewed him right before that and remember him saying the things like i this is this has taken too long um <laughs> this should have happened earlier and i'm like okay sure ambitious no but it was it was a very 
it wasn't even to the point where like most people thought it was late because he's just been such a staple. Like remember mm. before this, they had been a very loud opposition party. Like it's the, the party that grabs the most attention. Also the a party we have to grant cre- credit where credit is due. That was very active in parliament in terms of proposing bills, passing bills, debating bills, things that parliament is useful for, which other parties did less of with notable exceptions, obviously. But, and so people just thought it was overdue in the sense they had tried out all the other parties in different forms and like that Vendosia, this very loud party, this very vocal party, the protest party should have finally be, should finally be elected. And, and LDK didn't like that because they're again, being the oldest party, they didn't like having to suck up <laughs> to, the, to the upstarts, you know, to the young upstarts because they all, they were, LDK is made up of, their center right party, especially in terms of economic their economic mm-hmm. policies, and so they're they're all these professors and you know um, free market economists and stuff. And there was this like this leftist guy who was like going to be the next prime minister, and then you need to sit down and kind of listen to him. And it it wasn't they weren't happy about the situation. So the government was formed, and this was also around the time when U.S. ambassador uh, the U.S. ambassador to Germany Richard Grinnell started getting involved in like finding a solution for Kosovo or the Kosovo-Serbia issue. Insiders from the beginning, like I know I had that in like a story pitch or something going back to like February, but like insiders were like Trump, because Donald Trump was president at the time, only wants this so that he can be this big peacemaker and get a Nobel Prize because, you know, Nobel Peace Prize because Obama has a Nobel Peace Prize. And, you know, and so these people weren't, Grinnell was not interested in actually trying to get a, a solid solution for the problem, obviously, because he flipped sides. Initially, he was very supportive of Kurti when he realized that Kurti was not as pliable as most politicians, which was like a dumb gamble on their side. Like the guy finally becomes prime minister after criticizing the establishment for years and criticizing, again, international Western meddling for years mm-hmm. and you expect him to like bend over backwards for your deal so that Trump can look good. Of course not. Yeah, but to not get into too many de- details, he he basically sort of fomented a coup <laughs> um, or a vote of no confidence as it's known in parliamentary terms um, in, in the Kosovo parliament, which was long launched by Kurti's coalition partners, the LDK. And so he was ousted. And this is this was so bad because, I mean, first of all, the government took ages to get formed because of these negotiations that I mentioned earlier. But then also you had this, this, this you lost a government right when the pandemic was starting, when you needed, when everyone was like in panic and you needed people, you know, the government that could do things and like launch lockdown, mm-hmm. yeah. you know amp up health facilities and stuff like that. So it was crushing for a lot of people. But what it did was it made people so angry. People, oh, they were so angry. While like Italians were banging their pots and pans in a sign of solidarity to the doctors and health workers, rightfully so, Kosovars did it as a sign of protest because they couldn't actually get out of their apartments to protest against what was happening in parliament, you know? And so right. they did that to sort of be like this, we don't like this. And the, the support then became so massive that in the next elections, Corti won overwhelmingly. Like he didn't need a coalition partner anymore. Right. I was just about to ask, what opened the door for his second shot at the hot seat, in your opinion? Oh, God. LDK as a party fell apart, largely. None of the leadership that was there at the time really did that well. Also, there was this, Trump did actually manage to force Serbia um, force whatever negotiate an agreement between Serbia and Kosovo, the Washington Agreement, which they signed in late 2020, and that plus um, the fact that the special court was or specialized chambers for mm-hmm. war crimes in Kosovo was launched, and the president had to resign, kind of caused a constitutional crisis, and 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 um, government fell apart and and new elections were called. Mm. Going back to Kurti, um, did his policies change since the early days of his activism? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd say yes, because, and honestly, they should probably, most people would say they should change even more because he's, you know, prime minister now. He can't be the protester anymore. 
Um, if that's the kind of political system you want. Yeah, I mean, who is he going to protest against, like himself? They tried that briefly. It was really funny. It was really funny. There was something. There was a protest against the Ministry of uh, Justice, and the Minister of Justice was also very vocal. But Mendoza person went to the protests, and I was, and everyone was like, <laughs> "You guys." Um, they claimed because they claimed because it was a policy that was kind of inherited from the previous administrations, and that's what they were protesting. Or see, I, see, I was joking. I I didn't. I didn't even know. Okay. He would probably. I think he's itching to throw some tear gas in Parliament. I honestly don't know how he's been so well-behaved, largely well-behaved so far. It's it's very weird. Yeah, so he, he's, he's, his policies changed in the sense that he has become more open to negotiating. He was very much against the Brussels dialogue or the what is the mm. EU-facilitated dialogue between Kosovo and Serbia. And this, vocally against it. Now he's kind of participating in it, not really, um, but kind of. And a couple of other things that involve sort of the international presence in Kosovo, he's kind of softened his approach on. But there are other things that he's absolutely not budged on. Well, I guess he's going to have to budge at some point. Mm. Um, I, I mean, we're going to get to that later. But he's very opposed to the formation of the Association of Serbian Municipalities, which is foreseen to be a political sort of a level of power that is added above the municipal level and below the executive level um, that would involve a level of self-organization between the Serb majority enclaves and areas in Kosovo, which was agreed upon in a Brussels agreement that was signed by Kosovo and Serbia in Mm -hmm. 2013. So he's going to have to kind of cave and get involved in that in some way or form, especially because of pressure on all sides. Uh, recently for him to do so but otherwise he's you know i think he's he's been he's tried very hard not to have to deal with that yeah what are his ambitions and and where does he stand now today are there any major opponents who could dethrone him in the upcoming period no kosovo is with all its many faults kind of going through a really good period right now in terms of its democratic institutions so after Kurti won at, at such an insane uh, margin in the second elections that, that, that were organized after he was removed from power, a lot of the party, the other parties changed their entire leadership. Mm-hmm. It helps also that the PD, big parts of the PDK leadership, they're awaiting trial and or involved in trials at, at The Hague. But they, changed, they reformed their parties intensely in a way that I think reflects a more modern perspective. And I think... For any democracy on this planet, that's the best thing possible. That when you get confronted with a party that is so popular and is doing so well, that you become a loyal opposition, like mm. like a good, healthy, diverse opposition. LDK has definitely gone there. They currently have one of their big breakthroughs was to win the local elections in Pristina. Um, they currently have the mayor there, and then and and Pristina is a Vetmanjosia stronghold. Mm. Like people really are not overwhelmingly, but pro- definitely the major- majority is um, pro-Vepangosia, and they didn't they, they didn't win. And PDK2 is sort of trying to change its ways. And, and I, I think, I don't, but they don't, I don't think they would win elections outright or be able to form a government without him at mm. this point. Just looking at it more broadly from the point of view of the entire region, Kurti seems to have a lot of fans, not just in Kosovo, but in, in the Western Balkans and throughout the Western Balkans. Why do you think that's the case? Yeah, I, I've, I have a split opinion on that. Like, on one hand, I understand that when you, it's something that, that any idiot would notice in the sense that you have a guy who's extremely invested and extremely involved, mm-hmm. you know, they tweet all the time. Kurti, someone, like, you go to press conferences and they have, because pressers can last for like 40 or 50 minutes because you can basically, every single journalist gets to ask the question they want to ask. Whether or not they, they'll get the answer that, you know, again, <laughs> is a different issue, but he's pretty uh, straightforward in that sense. That's something that's very rare currently in, in the Balkans, especially when it comes to leading politicians. Fair enough. And he also stands up to Serbia a lot and makes, you know, gets, gets Vucic really pissed off mm. a lot of the time. And I think other countries that have ongoing issues with Serbia find relief in that because they know that, you know, whatever Vucic can kind of deals with Croatia, Bosnia, Montenegro, North Macedonia in, in various ways, but they know that like Kosovo stuff gets him the most pissed off. <laughs> and the fact that Kurti is, is basically sort of 
you know, picking his persistently annoying. Yeah, so persistently annoying to him is a pl- if people find pleasure in that. <laughs> and that I can understand. And also the fact that, you know, as a political figure, he is very minimalist. I joke with my friends that he has like three two suits possibly, two suits, like a black and a blue one. Or perhaps, yeah, a navy one, several navy suits that are identical and he wears them to seem very low-key. Hmm. But, you know, at a time when when a lot of politicians in the region are so much where the you know, the the difference in 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 what in people earn what people earn and how much money the politicians have and what they spend it on, like this wealth gap that is massive, and people who are ostentatious, you know, with their money. When you have someone like Corti, who's like carries kind of an old briefcase. I mean, not old, but like it's not very cool or modern for for sure, mm. and and is very low key and has the same ill fitting navy suit everywhere. You know, people are like, this is this is so much better. It might just be that the bar is set very low. Mm. On the flip side, I think that a lot of people are unaware of the fact that Corti makes has made and and will. I expect continue to make, <laughs> I might be wrong. We can, we can check back in like half a year um, stakes when it comes to the relationship, his relationship with Albania and his relationship to Serbia. I mean, this is reflected also in my reporting. So I'm not pulling this out, of ass, but um, can, can you say that? Can we say that word? On this we'll bleep it out. Okay. Or not. Yeah. Let's um, <laughs> give it an X rating and, and get people wondering like what, what happened in that episode? Yeah, well, I'm talking about Kurti. Um, so <laughs> it ends up X-rated anyway. And, yes, exactly. And uh, well, in certain countries in the region, it's going to end up X-rated. Say that. No, but one of the biggest you asked me earlier about, like, what policies does he maintain and when, which ones he's changed, and he's always been. So he believes that the identity forced onto Kosovo after 1999 and after 08, like Kosovo's flag anthem and everything is not reflective of the feelings of the local population. So he says things like, you know, even though Croatia committed war crimes and made mistakes and whatever, all the sides in Bosnia did, some more, some much less, whatever, Montenegro, which is often forgotten when it comes to war Mm. crimes and so on and so forth, they all got to kind of shape their identity after the war. The notable exception, obviously, is Bosnia, but then Bosnia is always a notable exception. Mm. But unlike Bosnia, Kosovo is... Population is over ninety percent Albanian, ethnic Albanian, and he believes that the West wants Kosovo, Kosovo Albanians, to undermine and sort of soften their ethnic feelings, their legitimate ones, in order to be more acceptable for the West. And he feels like that also isn't very democratic. I don't entirely agree, but that's it's a persistent opinion on his end, and it's one that he is maintained so far and so he for example him and eddie rama are like sworn enemies which is funny because you would assume everyone else again this is everyone else in the balkans would assume that you know oh they're you know the albanians are going to stick together or whatever and he's on terrible terms with dritan bazovic and 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 eddie rama so that doesn't as far as i know maybe that's it's, it's not better. How, it's not how it works yeah 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 so people just assume that you know it was, there's gonna be it's because they're albanian they're gonna like well it's it, it's not how it works in the rest of the region in any case it's not like you know well, being of one of of one of our own quote unquote doesn't necessarily imply that you you should agree with the next guy or or gal for that matter yeah, yeah, yeah. well exactly no i agree with that completely but Others were surprised. So he went, because he has Albanian citizenship, so not just Kosovar citizenship, but Albanian as well. And he, his party ran in the Albanian elections and he went to vote there as prime minister of Kosovo. And Idi Rama was like, furious. He was like, another word you have to bleep out. But he was so furious, you know, because you have, Kurti was still very popular then. And like, he went to the neighboring, to, you know, this country that were, Eddie Rama dominates, the Socialist Party dominates, and like votes in the elections and makes a big sort of deal out of it. So that's, that's I think, something that's, that people don't understand. Like, you shouldn't encourage that kind of behavior. Like, it's one thing for the Ndosi to be a legitimate movement in, in, in any other country, but most people would assume that it's done because he wants to make that part of his voter base who ascribe to nationalist beliefs, mm. such as the fact that Kosovo and Albania should be one country, he, he wants to, he's like peddling that to them. And so that's very problematic. And that's like something that people who support him in the region don't take into consideration because it will be a big problem. Like if, if Kosovo and Albania did something, anything to try to, you know, unify, it would Mm -hmm. cause a ripple effect 
undeniably across the entire region, you know, and, and in terms of the ne- negotiations with Bru- in, in Brussels, I mean, I can, I understand being angry at the EU and their inefficiency at leading dialogue, but like in his first meeting with Vucic, he went and like wrote his own peace deal and was like, here, we can decide a peace deal. And then he bought him some books. And it was like, it was like, you can't do that. Like you're wasting everyone's time. And, and, and seriously, if it wasn't the, like the EU dialogue, they meet so rarely at, at the high political levels. So mm-hmm, yeah. Dialogue is led officially by the heads of state, the two heads of state. It's led in Serbia by Vucic, no matter what position he has, and the prime minister. Oh, yeah. They meet very rarely. The technical teams, so they're teams that sort of hash out agreements and stuff like that, they meet more often. But the technical teams can only act based on something that's been sort of okay, especially if it's a big deal, smaller agreements can be agreed by the technical teams exclusively, but they have to get the green light from the top political leadership. And so their meetings are so rare and to go and like offer a, a peace deal to Vucic is just ridiculous. And I don't think he got criticized enough for that in the Kosovo press because hmm. Kosovo can't afford to lose time in the dialogue. Serbia can, Serbia doesn't mind, especially Vucic. But Kosovo can't afford to lose time. This was something that I don't think he had taken into consideration. Speaking of all of that, what about the latest crisis? I mean, what is what is his involvement in it like and what is at stake, at least on his end? Honestly, I think it's so ridiculous that while we have this this intense invasion of Ukraine going on and, and so many casualties and people's lives being, people being, you know, scarred for, for the rest of their lives and or whether it's through personal loss or just everything else that they're going through, having the world sort of get on the Kosovo and Serbia bandwagon over license plates is ridiculous to me. But this is, the license plates issue is is something that started last year. In September, Korti, again, in, in line with his big self-determination agenda, insists and claims that he is, you know, as the prime minister of Kosovo, he has to, he has an obligation to defend the country's constitution, which means, and the constitution means that he, his government, that they control all of Kosovo's territory, which means that they can administer fines and so on and so forth. Kosovo Serbs who live in northern Kosovo largely have uh, either both citizenships, so both Kosovar and, and Serbian, mm-hmm. or just Serbian. And along with that, they usually have either both Kosovo license plates or and Serbia license plates or just Serbian ones. This means that, you know, Serbia issues to this day passports to people who were born in Pristina, so the capital of Kosovo, and a li- uh, license plates for cars registered in Pristina, but they're issued by the Ministry mm-hmm. of Interior of Serbia, which are legal in Kosovo. Like Belgrade license plates are not illegal because that's a different. Right. But the ones that are issued for like Pristina or Prizren or... Although the main ones, the ones in what is referred to as central and southern Kosovo aren't that common, like their prison ones aren't mm-hmm. that common, but um, ones issued for Mitrovica, Lepsovic, Zubimpotok are, I forgot one, but I can't remember right now. Um, uh, yeah, one of the four that Kim mentioned all the time. Uh, I'll, I'm going to get like hate mail. It's going to be terrible. Probably <laughs> from people who live in that place. Yeah, yeah. How could you forget? I don't know. It's been, it's like I had to go back, like go really back, talk about Kurti and Kosovo's first like political parties. This is fair enough. So far, so many names to remember. Um, anyway, but these, like, no, all jokes aside, these license plates are illegal in Kosovo. And so he, you know, wanted to issue fines for people who weren't who kept driving those cars and stuff like that. And it's such a minor issue, but it started, it seems like such a minor issue. I mean, it is on one hand you understand because, okay, those they're illegal in Kosovo, according to the Kosovo constitution and the rule of law is something that the prime minister should be applauded for defending. But on the other hand, it's a little ridiculous as knowing the very specific political situation that Kosovo is in in terms of its relationship to Serbia and in terms of its involvement in dialogue and everything, it's ridiculous to assume that you can just pretend to be blind to all of this and harp on the rule of law kind of rhetoric and assume that that's not going to cause backlash. And so September was last year, October last year was when it first started. And then in July, it sort of really culminated into like barricades being formed in the North 
And then I got calls from every single editor of every single outlet of worked with and or wanted to work with asking me whether this a new front in Ukraine war was opening along Kosovo and Serbia. It's, it's never hurt more in my entire life for me to be like, I could have no. been be like, no, because I could have been like, oh, yes, and I'm the best expert. Please call me. So Maybe. Uh, no, but I had to be resp- the responsible journalist. No, of course. Um, of course. Um, not everyone on Twitter was responsible, <laughs> which is very frustrating. But they, this is this is how the issue developed. And then so it skipped Kuti is someone who does not like, he does not like criticism, which if he's listening to this, he's not, he's going to be like, oh no, I thought we could talk. I mean, he knows I'm a journalist and have criticized him a lot in the past. I, I don't know it very well, but I do know him, I mean, privately, but I do know him as, as a politician who's been a constant on the scene, just like I do all the you know politicians in the region that I talk to, but he's someone who does not not react to criticism on as someone who would like see this as, as like an unfair you know, and his fans too. This, 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 these cult-like people that you mentioned earlier that are going to send me a lot of fan hate mail, not fan mail. Hey, as long as they don't send you like a horse's head in your in your to your bed or something. He might have fans in Italy. I don't know if people still do that in Sicily. <laughs> Sicilian Albanians being like you put this size on me. Is that really an Italian thing or an, an Italian American thing? I don't know. Please don't encourage people to send me horses. It's a different. It's a different. It's a different podcast. Okay. It's a completely different podcast. And so getting kind of back on topic, he did not, he wasn't just going to give up or try to back down from his insistence that, you know, no, these license plates are illegal and we're not, you know, we can postpone the final sort of moment where we basically like confiscate cars or whatever, but by first, you know, issuing warnings or there's this ridiculous sticker regime where like, Mm. They had to cover up, like uh, cars driving in from Serbia had to cover up all their "quote unquote" um, national symbol. Like, yeah, I've seen it. It's just yeah. it's just white white uh, tape of some sort, white white very plain white sticker kind of thing that covers up like uh, the tiny flag that's yeah. you know on the Serbian flag that's on the license plate and some a couple. It's of very things. low production value. I must admit, it mm-hmm. looks very cheap. Well. Well, but everyone has to do it on the border, right? When they're crossing, it's so terrible. Like that border has been, the things that border has seen. I mean, I hate getting through it because there's always something going on. And and so now people who are driving in have to like stop, get out of the cars, right? Out, they get the stickers. No, the sticker regime isn't valid yet anymore, I think. Because this changes from day to day. I did see some stickered cars today, but I don't know if that was from before. And so people just have to get out of the other side of the border, get these stickers from like the border people, like the, the border control looks at your passport and it's like, okay, you can come in or ID card, whatever. And you can come in and then gives you like a packet of stickers. Like, and then you get out and you stick them on your license plates, which is ridiculous. And so he did not want to stop insisting on this. So then it got to a point where, you know, Brussels, because it was constantly being, people were fearing that it would be like a flashpoint, a new flashpoint in the region. Brussels got involved and actually called Korti and Vucic over to try to iron out an agreement, which didn't happen. And then Burrell was angry. Sorry. Hi, hi, the high rep for foreign policy was very angry um, at him. So that's that's why. But it's really just a microcosm of all the other issues that exist mm. between Kosovo and Serbia. So uh, over the years, the one tiny issue seemingly tiny and silly issue has been picked for the two sides to like fight over and but it's really just a reflection of the fact that kosovo wants serbia to stop preventing it from joining international organizations like the un and wants it to you know get go ahead with its its eu integration process whereas Serbia wants does not want to recognize Kosovo, but still wants to go through with its EU integration process. So, all right, we have enough time for just one last question, and let's let's make it let's make it uh, quick. What do you think Kurti would do if he weren't a politician? I think that's a really easy question to answer because he said it in interviews and stuff like that. He likes he's obsessed with like movies. And also French philosophers. He used to carry, it was this thing, he used to carry like little, like, I don't know, um, let's say Hobbes, it wasn't Hobbes. 
course not. Apologies. Someone's gonna. I'm, so now I'm gonna get the left. It's gonna send me hate mail. It's like no, of course not. But I don't know, like uh, like Barth and and stuff like that, like little books in his uh, Roland Barth, the French philosopher. Like he carried their books in, in in his briefcase and just make sure they peeked out a little bit so people would see it. So I think he he like I think he likes movies and film criticism and it's something that he would be in the profile I did for of him. He said that in the '90s that kind of opened his perspective towards the world the activist world because he was an engineering student who then got um, drawn into the whole political stuff thing. And so he, so that he would likely be like a film critic or a book critic or like a left-wing philosopher or something. Hmm. What else? Like a professor type, a professor type who like, who like protests against the university that he's right. in. Most yeah. definitely not a basketball player in any case. Oh, no, no, no. No, not a basketball. Although, like, I don't know. I don't know what he does in his free time except read books. Yeah. And Maybe movies. he shoots some hoops with, like, Vucic and Rama. Well, he'd be extremely um, out. Yeah. They, this, is why, this is why this episode's getting an X rating. <laughs> he'd be really bad at it because they're both so tall. <laughs> and he's not. Yeah, taller than average. Is Kurti taller than Dritana Bazic? I've seen both in person, but I, not at the same time. <laughs> Um, I wonder why. I, I think we covered that earlier in the show. Yeah, yeah. So he'd be a professor or a writer or j journalist. Could I could probably be a journalist? I don't think he'd do the whole talk to both sides to so be objective <laughs> thing. Um, no, no. <laughs> everyone is bad. No. So maybe he'd be an op-ed writer. He would definitely be an op-ed writer. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Columns. Oh, like like old school, yeah. like debates, columnist. He'd, he'd participate in polemics. <laughs> <laughs> like, that would totally be his thing. Awful. Okay. Una, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I really appreciate that you had the time for calling and thank you for a great explanation of Albin Kurti and who he is and what he's done, where he came from and where he's headed. It was a massive pleasure and also really fun. So yeah, thank you for having me. Lažne stručnjake i sve moguće strance koji su dolazili u ovu zemlju da mi sole pamet. Milo, lopove! Hoću ka si to! Bravo, kreteni! You are a mess, guys. You are a big mess and you are a disgrace. Teško da će iko naći nešto što je dostojno da će mene definirati da nisam Hrvat. Od vremena to pamtim za sebe. Mlade ljude koji odlaze će morati u velikoj meri nadoknaditi high-tech tehnologijama i robotikom. Šta ti radiš? Eto, malo nešto. Jesi ti mene učio da kad pjevaš god ne misliš? Nemaš vremena, mi zbog. Protest will not stop until we achieve our main demand. Obesio bih se ovaj najveći lustar ovde, samo zato što sam ih bilo šta slušao.